Welcome to another edition of the American Bankruptcy Institute podcast, which feature conversations with prominent figures in the bankruptcy and related debtor-creditor world about topics of interest to our members. I am Jean Brauker, professor of law at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and current resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am pleased to welcome as my guest Kathleen C. Engel, who is Associate Dean for Intellectual Life and Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School in Boston. She is with us to discuss her book, The Subprime Virus, Reckless Credit, Regulatory Failure, and Next Steps, published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. Kathleen's co-author is Patricia A. McCoy, a law professor at the University of Connecticut. Professor Engel is a national authority on mortgage finance and regulation, subprime and predatory lending, and housing discrimination. The subprime virus examines how abusive lending and regulatory failure in one corner of the home mortgage market led to the near meltdown of the world's financial system and the greatest economic collapse since the Great Depression. This podcast is part of a series examining the mortgage meltdown from varying perspectives. Kathleen, you begin and end the book with a focus on Cleveland, where you and Patricia McCoy were both teaching at Cleveland State University in the 1990s. What did you see going on in Cleveland then in the realm of mortgage finance? What was good? What was problematic? It's interesting that it was our experience in Cleveland that led Pat McCoy and I to write the book. Uh, we were living in an inner ring suburb of Cleveland, and at the time, uh, predatory lending was really in its infancy in most of the country, but it was thriving in Cleveland. Brokers were targeting unfair loans in communities where there was a large number of um, African Americans or a large percent of African Americans, and they were betting on the fact that because of past discrimination, there was pent-up demand for credit. And also there were um, uh, a lot of community investment projects that had taken place in Cleveland. So after some of the um, racial unrest in the uh, 60s and 70s, the city had invested um, money in communities, developing housing, creating programs with tax incentives for people, to rehab homes, and uh, the city was starting to come back. The effect of these city investments um, was that people's property values went up, so they had more equity. And with more equity, that meant people could take out loans. So in many ways, these lenders and brokers who were coming into the community were extracting equity that borrowers had because of city investments. So what we saw were these lenders coming in, making loans predominantly in communities of color um, based on the equity that people had in their homes rather than um, whether they could afford the loans, not looking at income and things like that. And we just couldn't understand why that made sense just as a business model. And we started asking ourselves, you know, what, what's the rationale here? Who's making money? How can, how can this be sustainable? And um, that's how it all began. Uh, there were good things, obviously, from more credit going into Cleveland. People who um, 
obtain loans that they could afford, were able to borrow money to, to further rehab their homes, to send their kids to college, whatever it may have been um, that they needed money for. So in that way, it was very valuable to have the credit there. The problem was that it wasn't quality credit. Now, the subtitle of your book uh, suggests three topics, reckless credit, regulatory failure, and next steps. So let's take uh, each one of those in turn, beginning with reckless credit. Uh, as you recount, the subprime sector really took off in the period from 2000 to 2006. What were the key factors that fueled the growth? You've mentioned the growth in equity. Um, I assume that was one of them. What, what were the others? There were a lot of, um, of factors. One was, on the demand side, just a lot of pent-up demand for credit. People hadn't been able to obtain loans. We had... Uh, uh, a market that didn't clear. In other words, there, were, um, there was always a queue of borrowers who wanted loans and couldn't get them. And with securitization of loans, it enabled um, more people to obtain credit. So you had a lot of demand for credit. Um, another was that uh, interest rates dropped, although they went up. For, there was a blip in there where they went up and then they went down again following 9-11. There was also a lot of cash in the market. There were investors who needed to plant their money somewhere. And uh, investors like, uh, you know, insurance funds and uh, or insurance companies and pension funds, they're limited in what they can invest in. And bonds that have high ratings, they're allowed to invest in. So there was, uh, there was a demand uh, coming from the investment side for uh, mortgage-backed securities that had these high ratings, which the rating agencies were generously putting on these uh, uh, tranches of, um, of pools of loans or secure tranches of securities. There was also a strong uh, push for home ownership coming from a lot of different directions and from both political parties. And there was also um, a push from Wall Street itself because Wall Street um, makes money on deals. And they, the more mortgages that could get converted into uh, securities, the more money they made in underwriting fees and fees for um, uh, as broker-dealers selling the securities. So there, were, there was a lot of, um, a lot of uh, incentive from the finance market side, both from borrowers and up to Wall Street, for these kinds of products. Another thing is that uh, there, wasn't very, there was very, very little enforcement. So this market grew exponentially in part because nobody was, no government agency was uh, keeping an eye on what was happening. Now, there was a period under the Clinton administration where people like Ellen Seidman, who was at the Office of Thrift Supervision, was very, were very actively trying to address the problems of um, abusive lending. But when there, with the change in the administration, all those uh, efforts were deep six. Now, you mentioned uh, abusive lending, and I'd like to talk about what was reckless uh, in this growth of subprime lending. There's also the terminology of predatory lending. To what extent can you distinguish these two things? Was all of the growth in subprime lending bad, or was it just some of it? And what was it that was particularly reckless? Yeah, so the, the, the nomenclature here is, is tricky, and sometimes I think that we, Pat McCoy and I tried to kind of take a pass at it by using the word reckless, but you know, people talk about predatory lending, subprime lending, alt-A lending, 
the way we think about uh, reckless lending is in two respects. One, lending that was reckless because it put borrowers at risk, risk and lending that was reckless because it was bad for the society as a whole because, it, because of the um, external effects of high rates of default, but also the effects on financial markets, as we saw. Um, so the, the uh, Alt-A lending, that lending was a, is kind of a niche product where the, um, the, the borrowers are getting loans that, where they really have sufficient income to be able to afford their loans, but they don't have adequate credit history, so they get products that are a little bit more expensive and are based more on the anticipation that property values are going to go up. That's what the Alt-A lending products were really about. We would describe predatory lending as um, having, uh, a sim- having certain symptoms. So they, and, and sometimes a loan would have only one symptom of predatory lending and others would have multiple ones. But that could include um, different types of misrepresentations, making loans that, there's, that borrowers couldn't afford to repay, so it's, it's more like a, a collection of different types of practices, and that's what made uh, loans predatory. These distinctions uh, got muddied over time because what happened is as predatory lending became more mainstream, the actual costs of credit went down some. During the, the height of the predatory lending, people were paying interest rates of as high as 18% a year when they could have... Um, been eligible for a loan at 7 or 8%. What we saw is as predatory lending became more mainstream, it started to get framed more subprime. We did see some reduction in interest rates, and that's where everything uh, got muddied in terms of the line between predatory and subprime. Um, But generally, the reason it, it was reckless from a borrower's perspective, in addition to the problems of loans not being affordable, is that the loans were incredibly confusing. Um, but we, we borrowed a term from um, the writer of the, the Dilbert comic strip who calls it uh, a confused obsolete, um, that, the, that the market created confusopolies so that borrowers really didn't know what they were getting into. And, of course, there was a lot of um, exploitation of borrowers taking advantage of um, their lack of sophistication or understanding or desperate straits. Another important part of the story was securitization. Uh, is, is there a way that securitization can be done without the bad effects that we've seen in the mortgage meltdown? What was going on in securitization that seemed to fan the flames? Yeah, so the, the thing about securitization is that it is an incredibly valuable tool that, if used correctly, um, can benefit everybody. Um, brokers, lenders, arrangers, rating agencies, investors, borrowers, and used incorrectly or in, a, in, in ways that are um, potentially damaging for the society can be disastrous. There's a, um, a term within the industry or a phrase within the industry uh, that a rolling loan gathers no loss. And that's what happened with securitization. The loans rolled from broker to lender to arranger to the investors, and everybody was getting a cut of the money, and no one was at retaining enough risk or feeling enough reputational concern 
to really police what was happening on the ground and on the by on the ground I mean um, literally in the um, mortgage uh, origination and this is uh, about a, a lack of underwriting is that the, the fundamental problem I would say it was bad underwriting the um, the arrangers were um, not doing a good job ensuring that the arrangers weren't doing a good job making sure that the originators had complied with their reps and warranties uh, in the in the um, uh, agreements and the the evidence is that the reps and warranties were honored in the breach so that the originators weren't being careful about what they were putting in loan pools but if somebody came back and said look you put some garbage in this um, this pool, then the uh, originators would take the loan back. But it wasn't, they weren't doing a good job when they were assembling these pools. From the arranger side of, side of things, they were um, engaging in minimal due diligence. And in fact, as the market um, looked weaker and weaker, they reduced the due diligence. So they reduced the loans that they were sampling, the number of loans. They allowed more exceptions, which were loans that didn't meet the originator's underwriting criteria for the um, making of the original loans. And the arrangers didn't make the due diligence reports available to the credit rating agencies or to the, um, to the investors. So they were um, uh, very much complicit in not policing the market. And, and the other, they, if the market doesn't police what's happening, then we hope that the government comes in and fills the gap, especially when you're talking about risk that, that has societal impacts. But the government decided not to do that. They made a deliberate choice to defer to the market. So if you have a market that's not self-policing and the government isn't stepping in, then, um, then you really can get exponential risk, and that's really what happened here. And, and you've referred to the fact that the federal government was uh, strongly promoting home ownership, um, and that was part of the, the climate that made reckless subprime lending growth possible. This went back at least until um, President Clinton through President George W. Bush. Uh, we had this common thread of promoting home ownership. Do you think that um, increasing home ownership as a public policy goal was a mistake or at least oversold? I think it was definitely oversold, and I think part of the reason it was oversold, or the way in which it was oversold, is that um, it actually has parallels with what was happening uh, with the lending as well, which is that we have to have, we have, to have good policies that um, ha are, have the word reasonable in them, so a reasonable loan. Um, reasonable home ownership and what what's reasonable home ownership well you need to have enough money left over so that if you get a leak in the roof um, you can pay for it you have to be able to pay for the mortgage out of existing income not income you hope you're going to get or and not out of um, hoped for increase in equity in the house where you completely can can, uh, can look at tapping the equity constantly to be able to pay your mortgage um, so I think that the, the, what we need to do in terms of a home ownership policy in the United States is to continue to promote home ownership, but do it in partner with plan, partnership with programs to encourage savings, 
to give tax, incent, uh, tax incentives through um, allowing the home mortgage interest deduction for people who don't itemize uh, and things like that. But to simply promote home ownership per se, um, I think was a mistake. Yeah, uh, home ownership by any means. Well, let's let's talk right. about regulatory uh, failure. Uh, one of your themes is that lots of people saw this crisis coming or perhaps should have seen it. Uh, of course, you and Patricia McCoy did see it coming, uh, yet regulators obviously failed to prevent the subprime crisis uh, and the broader financial crisis that it caused. Uh, but before really examining regulators, let's talk about the borrowers. Were subprime borrowers at fault at all? Why did they enter into these mortgages that they couldn't afford? I think some were very much at fault. Uh, if you look at uh, who was buying properties, who was taking out these loans, um, a, a, a significant percent were investors who were looking to buy property and, um, and then flip it because they were riding the wave of the increased value in homes. So certainly I think those investors um, are, bear a great deal of personal responsibility for um, default, for their own defaults on their loans. And those are the people who are just walking away from the property and oftentimes leaving it bank- vacant um, and causing all sorts of problems for neighborhoods. There are also, I think, a significant number of people who just didn't understand the products were really complex. They were sold a bill of goods by the brokers. Um, they didn't understand uh, that, that they were taking on more risks than they could handle. And, of course, there are all the um, behavioral economics explanations for the way people behave, that, you know, we, we all can imagine making um, more money, but we don't um, for probably reasons having to do with the, the um, biological instinct towards resilience, we don't think about the fact that we could fall down on the ice tomorrow, break our hip, and be out of work for six months. So that people just have the, had this belief that their financial situation would continue to improve. And so they didn't exercise ca- the caution that they should have. And then the last piece is people were greedy. And greed is a problem. Greed gets in the way of good decision-making. Okay, so if we talk about regulators, obviously there's plenty of blame to go around, but uh, can you identify the top few regulatory failures that created the subprime virus and the agencies that failed the most? And let's start with the period um, from uh, the late 1990s to 2006, which was the period of the big growth in subprime lending. What were the regulatory failures then? I think that the two biggest regulatory failures um, were by the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and the Office of Thrift Supervision. The Federal Reserve Board had uh, a mandate from Congress to enact rules to address unfair and deceptive uh, acts and practices in mortgage markets. And Alan Greenspan, despite the mandate from Congress, which was in the Home Ownership Equity Protection Act, refused. He said, we're not going to issue any rules under this provision. And that was the problem because the Fed has the access to information and the authority to issue mortgage regulations that really could have prevented this type of crisis. 
and they made the decision to, um, to really, I would say, defy the mandate of Congress. And the second thing is that the Federal Reserve had the authority to, uh, to oversee the subsidiaries of bank holding companies. One of the things that happened over time from the 1990s into the 2000s was that the big arrangers and big commercial banks began buying up subprime lenders because that way they could have a steady flow of loans to securitize. So we were in the early years, the subprime lenders were more fly-by-night operations. They were undercapitalized. They um, didn't have deep connections with Wall Street, although they sold the loans to Wall Street from an institutional perspective. They weren't connected. So these large banks were buying up subprime lenders, and every major lender in the United States among the you know, big um, five to seven banks, owned subprime lenders. And Alan Greenspan said that he didn't have the authority to, um, to uh, oversee them. So what happened is after Chairman Bernanke came into office, the Fed began exercising its powers of oversight over those um, uh, subsidiaries. And it was those subsidiaries that were engaged in some of the worst practices in the country and the ones who really put us at risk. So those two decisions by the Fed, I think, are un- were unconscionable and um, really wreaked havoc on the country. The other is that um, the OTS, which um, up until recently the Office of Thrift Supervision had the authority to regulate the old-fashioned thrift institutions, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency regulated the national banks. And, what, and both of these agencies get their funding primarily from the member banks. In other words, the people they supervise pay, pay their supervisors. Um, and what this meant was that the OCC and the OTS were in a constant competition to get banks to select one of them as their supervisor, as their regulator. And they competed by saying, we will regulate you less than our competitor agencies. So the OTS was the most aggressive in courting banks to switch to thrift charters so that they would get less regulation. And I think that was hugely problematic. And um, what it meant was that there was this race to the bottom in terms of of regulation, particularly by the OTS, which was very successful in getting banks to switch to thrift charters. Now, some have have said that uh, uh, Fannie and Freddie, uh, the government-sponsored entities that create investment uh, vehicles in the secondary market, that they were... Um, a cause uh, of this um, subprime virus. How much do you think they were at fault in creating the subprime crisis? Yeah, it's interesting to see this this dispute as it uh, develops um, between people who say it was the fault of private markets and people who say it was the fault of the government in some way. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac do bear some responsibility. But if you go back to um, the late 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were very much at the vanguard in terms of uh, their own internal policies 
to try to curtail predatory lending. In fact, they had um, regulations, internal regulations, that limited the types of loans that they could buy. And if loans had certain features that were characteristic of predatory lending, they wouldn't buy those loans. And they were the model for many people um, in the country for how to adequately um, address the problems of abusive loans getting funded through financial vehicles like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, and through Wall Street. So at the beginning, they were, they were really the model. Then what happened is two things. One is that um, Fannie and Freddie started to fulfill their housing goals that are set by HUD um, by buying bonds that were backed by subprime loans, which in and of itself wasn't a problem, except that they didn't apply their anti-predatory lending standards to the loans that were backing the securities they were purchasing. In other words, they were careful about the loans they bought directly, but they weren't exercising the same level of care about the securities that they were buying. And so they were uh, effectively potentially supporting abusive lending on the one hand, and on the other hand, in the loan purchase arena, they were effectively uh, curtailing abusive lending. So they were, in some ways, engaging in contradictory um, practices. And then what happened is um, that there was, again, a race to the bottom, like what we see with the OCC OTS charter competition. Fannie and Freddie started to see the private securitization market take up a greater percent of the market share. And, um, and instead of the private securitization market um, bring, raising their standards to be similar to Fannie's and Freddie's, Fannie and Freddie started to drop their standards. And they started to buy riskier and riskier loans. So towards the, the end um, of the, you know, the point of time up until the crisis really hit, it was only at the, the last few years of that period that Fannie and Freddie bear responsibility. And certainly they don't bear it alone. It started in the private securitization market. Okay, well, let's turn to, uh, you know, what happened when the crisis got underway. Um, uh, and in particular, I'd like to focus on what, whether too little was done um, as things began to melt down. This is in 2006 and 2007 as the subprime default rate uh, increased. Uh, were there opportunities for regulation there that were missed that could have happened, um, you know, earlier before we had the, you know, the the really big crisis and the, you know, sort of muscular response in the fall of 2008 uh, and then the need for bank bailouts. Could this have been, you know, could intervention earlier have stopped this from getting as big as it did? Yeah, well, I think it could have. Uh, I, I think, I don't think anybody really understood how deep the problems were. And, um, and part of that, the reason was, that the, um, the government was not collecting information and was not examining these large institutions thoroughly. So what happened is you had all this risk out there all over the place. Nobody knew how to price it. Nobody knew who held it. Um, the different derivatives you know, and the, the credit default swaps being the most notorious you know, weren't cleared on any kind of centralized exchange or market, and so that what happened is there was all of this uh, sort of these one-off deals all over the place, 
and nobody really understood what the problems were systemically. It was a small group in London that was really responsible for AIG going down. Um, you know, when you think about that, it was a, you know, a couple dozen people um, somewhere in London who were writing all the insurance on the swaps, and they weren't, were effectively unregulated. So all of, there was a great deal of unknown out there. And, and at the, the first stage in the crisis, um, people like Ben Bernanke really saw it as a hiccup. They said things like, well, the problems in the subprime market aren't going to spill over to the greater economy and things like that. And, and then the crisis really hit. And when the crisis hit, I think that the Federal Reserve Board acted decisively and wisely. I think that given the, the situation at, in that moment of the crisis, I don't think that um, in light of what they knew, the power they had and how quickly they had to act, they could have done a better job. That doesn't mean if they'd had time to contemplate and had more information, there couldn't have been a better resolution. I think there could have been, but it was completely an emergency. And you're talking about the fall of 2008, the the big interventions then, yeah. Right. But in, in 2005, there were already signs of trouble. In 2006, the signs were quite strong. At that point, I think that they should have gone in and gathered more information, gotten data, looked at different options, looked at the experiences of states that had done some work to try to get um, controls over the lending. Um, Then in the crisis itself, they were so focused on the larger macro economy that they didn't think about um, and didn't address what the impact was on individuals and on communities. Okay. Well, I thought we would turn now, and uh, you've, I think, um, referred to this, uh, the, the business of, of individuals and their problems with their mortgages. Uh, I think this is part of the topic of next steps, and there really are two parts to next steps. One is how we get out uh, of this continuing financial doldrums, um, and particularly the mortgage crisis. And the other is the question of prevention of anything like this happening again. So on on getting out of the mortgage crisis, it seems as though, to some of us anyway, this has been going on forever, three or four years and counting. Uh, And I'm interested in your insights as to why the housing market is still weak, um, why this situation is taking so long to resolve itself with no end apparently in sight, and, you know, the private and government modification programs have not been keeping pace with the numbers of homeowners at risk. Why are servicers and investors acting against their self-interest? Is there some sort of market failure? Why aren't regulators doing a better job here, too? I think this is one of those times where the right answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There there are a lot of different things going on. One is that um, the just from um, a technological standpoint, nobody was geared up for this crisis. Servicers imagined that every once in a while a borrower would get sick or lose their job and they'd have to modify the loan or do something to help them out. And they were not geared up for having huge shops with call centers trying to modify loans both using proprietary projects, products, and different governmental programs and all of that. So there was just that getting the technology together has been very hard. Mm -hmm. And it's been tough for Treasury with programs like HAMP because they've had to constantly 
change different procedures and rules and incentives. And every time they have to do that, the servicers have to go back and, um, you know, train their staff, which means that while the staff is in training, they can't be doing modifications. Um, as one servicer described to me the room where they have the fax machines, and he said it's like a cartoon. You see the paper just flying out of the fax machines all over the place. Um, and it is still, modifications are still very much based on paper. Um, so there's, there is that whole piece of um, the servicers not gearing up or not being able to gear up as quickly as we would like. They've had time now, so that excuse doesn't work any longer. I think it, it was a good excuse at the beginning. The servicers are, uh, as people have written about, subject to all sorts of different um, financial incentives, and they have, until Congress addressed this, faced uh, the risk of potential litigation because they're acting, supposedly, in the best interest of the trust, but the trusts that um, issued the different securities have investors with different uh, interests. And so it's not always possible, in fact, it's rarely possible for a servicer to act in the interest of all tranches of security holders. And there are financial incentives that um, in, that servicers have to foreclose over modify, and they also are often linked through the same corporate family with entities that hold the second mortgages on property. So if you engage in a loan modification, that means wiping out the holder of the second mortgage, you could be wiping out the interest of an entity with which you're affiliated. And I, I think that's a very important uh, piece of the story. The other thing is that um, uh, the, the other way to get the market going, other than modifications, is through short sales to allow um, borrowers to be relieved of some of their obligation to pay on the mortgage and have the property sold for a lower amount, which enables uh, the property to move on to a person who can hopefully afford to, to finance it and relieve the borrower, and it means that the original lender would be paid off, and the, or the, in the case of a securitized loan, the investors. Um, and we're not seeing a lot of short sales, and I don't know if that's because the, it's just too complicated, there are too many people involved, buyers, sellers, um, real estate brokers, um, the trust, servicers, I, I just don't know exactly what that problem, why there's that problem, but these, there should be many more short sales. I also think right now there's signs of recovery and that it may be that um, the, uh, the interests of the trust are to kind of hold and wait right now or to foreclose and hold the property to be able to sell it later on, assuming that prices are going to go up. And then another big factor is that people can't get credit. Uh, it's now oftentimes, at least with a jumbo, you have to put down, I believe, 25%. Um, and at the very moment where sh we should be making more credit available, we are making less credit available. In fact, I actually think our housing finance policy should all be countercyclical. So when there's a lot of money out there, and credit's easy to get, that's when we should be putting, raising the price, chilling the market a bit. But that in times like this, 
where people can't get loans to buy homes, so they can't get help to get this um, housing market to recover, the government should be stepping in and making more money available, and so should the private sector. Now, instead, it seems that we have a critique uh, that the right way to handle the current situation is to speed up foreclosures and clear the market. Uh, do you think this would restore stability in the housing market faster than modifications or more credit, um, you know, foreclosure prevention programs? Well, I think at right now speeding up foreclosures isn't going to work for a number of reasons, one being that there are all of these paperwork problems. And if I were representing buyers, my first piece of advice would be don't buy a property that um, was foreclosed upon because you may not have good title. And we're seeing that litigated in a number of different um, uh, state courts around the country that the, um, the foreclosing entities didn't have good title and then transfer bad title to the new owner. So that's a, that's a, a huge problem right now. So we're not going to see a big increase in foreclosures for a while until they get this paperwork together. Um, but even if we even if um, we did get rid of the paperwork problems, which I think ultimately we will, the next question is, is that is foreclosure what we want? And I think there are two ways to look at it. One is that speedy foreclosures on vacant property or abandoned property is critical. We need to get that property into the hands of an entity that will take responsibility for it. Right now, with vacant property, nobody's taking responsibility for it. There's nobody to really go after for public nuisance claims, housing code violations, um, taxing authorities aren't getting their taxes paid, neighbors are seeing their homes depreciate because they're next door to abandoned homes that become you know, places where there's drug dealing. In some cases, there have been, you know, kids who have found guns in empty buildings, it's really terrible. And, um, and that problem is most acute in the neighborhoods that are most vulnerable. So what we've done is we've stripped equity out of the most vulnerable neighborhoods. And now not only have we um, uh, done that, we've allowed these abandoned homes to, to multiply and make the neighborhoods even more dangerous and less economically stable. So I think in terms of abandoned property, we've got to move fast. And I, I am uh, a proponent of expedited foreclosures if the property is empty. And what about pro- when it's not in- empty? That is, the person is still living in the home but unable to make the payments. Right. So I, am, uh, I really advocate for cramming down mortgages, principal reductions, interest rate deductions, converting... Um, the loans from adjustable rate to fixed rate. Right now, the adjustable rate mortgages are, are, are fairly inexpensive for the most part, but interest rates will go up. And when they go up, we're going to have another wave of foreclosures uh, because people just aren't going to be able to afford the higher rates. And the reason I think that's the route to go is that it will stabilize the housing market because we're not going to have a, a flood of homes on the market for sale. Secondly, there are huge social costs these foreclosures. When children change schools, the rates of teen pregnancy, drug abuse, um, reductions in high school graduations are all, uh, graduation rates are all um, dramatically affected. And these are social costs that all of us are going to bear, and we'll bear them for a generation. There are reports of teachers who have changed their entire curricula because they, um, they have such a, um, a transient student population 
that they can only study Egypt in two weeks, not a month, because so many kids are coming and going um, into the classroom. And these are tremendous problems. Um, when people have to, uh, be, to relocate, they end up moving in with family and friends. You have overcrowding. They lose so important social connections. Um, the, the fabric of entire neighborhoods has been destroyed. And I think that for that reason, we should be really looking at changing the terms of these loans. And I know that there will be cost to the investors. And some of those investors are our own pension funds and places like that. But I think in the long term, the social costs um, of uh, massive foreclosures are larger than the losses that we as a collective will experience from changing the, the loan terms. And I think that's the most efficient way to go. Okay. And on the subject of prevention of another crisis, um, we have the Dodd-Frank Act, and one piece of that is the uh, c- the creation of the new Consumer Financial Protection Agency. Um, and I, I'd like to ask you whether you think that's going to make a big difference going forward, and in particular, um, how should mortgages be regulated? Should we be going back to the days of 20% down uh, in order to get into a home, or would that constrain home ownership too much? I think that having um, uh, more stringent underwriting for home loans is a good thing. Um, but we need to partner it with programs that make home ownership available to people who have the capacity to be responsible homeowners. So it's, uh, it, it, can't be, it can't simply be that we say, okay, now we're going to have a 20% down rule. I don't, I don't have a problem with the 20% down rule, although I'd like to see it more like in the 10% range, um, but only if we're helping people by saving for that down payment, for helping them to learn um, greater skills, in terms of financial management and planning and things like that, I would, I would make a requirement of high school graduation that you have to take a financial literacy class. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and uh, we need to have subsidies to allow people to become homeowners. We also, I think there's some people that shouldn't be owning homes, either because they like risk too much or they um, are bad at managing money, or they're bad at fixing things, so every light bulb that needs to be changed, they have to call in a a contractor to do. Um, And we need to promote good, solid um, stock of rental property and can try to create incentives maybe for long-term rentals so that people um, uh, can, you know, make a commitment to to a lease because... What that means is that they'll have a sense of stability. One reason people buy homes is because they don't want to be evicted. They don't want to have to, to move out. So we could, if we could develop some more um, long-term rental properties and options, I think that would be good. All right. And, and the final topic I'd like to bring up, and of course we can't discuss this in any depth given our time constraints, but um, another part of the Dodd-Frank Act is uh, provisions to control systemic risk. And you point out in the book um, that there's, um, by one count at any rate, 243 separate rulemakings that are necessary uh, to put these, um, you know, the systemic risk control in place, uh, giving 
the financial services industry another bite at the apple uh, to weaken financial reform. So what's your sense of how that process is going in early 2011? Yeah, it's, a, it's um, an important question. The, the financial services industry worked hard to derail any form of um, uh, financial reform and consumer protection for many years. But I think, you know, by uh, about a year ago, they realized they weren't going to be able to, to stop the legislation. And so they um, targeted certain areas to, to try to address. And um, through lobbying and, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars spent on lobbying. Um, but what happened, I think, is that by about, you know, the early summer of last year, where it was clear that the Dodd-Frank Act was going to go through, they shifted their focus. And they shifted their focus not to lobbying, but to um, seeing how they could influence the rulemaking process. And the rulemaking process is really different than the lawmaking process, in that the lawmaking process um, is there are a lot of special interest groups that get a voice, and um, you know, you're working with elected politicians. So it's, it's just a different kettle of fish. The rulemaking process is very much data-driven and information-driven. Agencies gather information. They have to document what information they gather. They have to weigh the costs and benefits of different approaches. It's a much more rigorous process than uh, lawmaking. And so the best way to influence rulemaking is to have access to information that you can then study and write reports and submit to the agencies and um, through the during, while they're going through their um, proposed rulemaking process. The uh, problem with that um, from a consumer perspective is that the financial services industry has all the information and uh, the consumer groups do not. So the federal government has historically made a decision to not collect any really meaningful information on loans on um, different uh, types of securities, on credit um, uh, default swaps, on collateral debt obligations, and, and all of these different products, which makes it very difficult for either the government or um, uh, people who don't represent the financial services industry to really cull through the information um, and issue reports and engage in empirical analyses and statistical analyses. So that's going to be, I think, a problem going forward because um, the financial services industry has the capacity to marshal resources to really influence the rulemaking. And although Dodd-Frank does have provisions to, um, uh, to collect data, through various agencies have the authority and the mandate to collect data, that's not going to happen for a time. So we're, I think what we're going to see, and I think we're already starting to see, is the financial services industry um, uh, issuing lots of reports using their own proprietary information that nobody else gets to look at. Okay, and to take this back to where we started, um, which is uh, hard-hit communities like Cleveland, um, what's it what's it going to take uh, for those neighborhoods, um, you know, of, of cities around the country, uh, and in some cases, rural areas where there's massive foreclosure and all kinds of um, attendant social problems that you've referred to. What's going to take uh, to, you know, can you end with an, uh, a note of hope here? Um, well, I can, because 
Uh, well, we, we start the book saying, hope doesn't come easy in Cleveland. That's our opening line. But um, the thing about Cleveland is it's kind of a junkyard dog city. People are fierce in their loyalty. They, you know, they come back. They're not going to give up. And it's, it, it actually made both Pat McCoy and I fall in love with the city, just the people's fierce devotion to it. And that's continued. And Cleveland really was the epicenter of the subprime crisis. In our, in our book, we, have, um, we show the Midwest is where it all began. It's kind of like the, uh, that uh, massive uh, blackout in the Northeast a few years ago. Um, everything began around Cleveland. So, um, but Cleveland also is the epicenter of efforts to address the fallout from the crisis, and Cleveland has done some extraordinary things. One of the things they're doing is they're just tearing down houses. Um, I, I was in Cleveland a little bit ago, and I just was walking through neighborhoods and um, seeing that the, the, where the cities just raise these houses, and then they're going into the communities and saying, what do you want here? Do you want a park? Do you want a playground? Do you want a community garden? How could you use this space? And I think that's a way to go. It's particularly important in Cleveland because Cleveland's a city that's depopulated. So there's too much housing anyway. And the housing that exists is not that appealing in many neighborhoods to new homeowners because just it's the, the post-war um, housing, little bungalows, not much room, only one bathroom. So there, there's not a lot of demand for that housing. So it really makes sense to do this. The other thing that, that uh, Cleveland is doing um, is they've, they have a very, very successful um, land bank where um, properties are um, uh, disposed of, and they've started a new county land bank, and this is all um, incredibly important and is serving as models for the rest of the country. Well, great, and I'm sure there are going to be uh, a variety of local um, efforts and solutions. Um, we're out of time, so I would like to thank Kathleen Engel uh, for talking today uh, with us about the subprime virus, uh, her book with Patricia McCoy, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jane. It's a pleasure.